Good morning. We are in the midst of a sermon series with the title, A Missionary Church. And in this series, we are seeking together as a church, we are seeking God's wisdom for how to be faithful to him and to our city, to our community, to our neighbor. And we are seeking wisdom on how to do this, not in general, but today with this particular city, with our particular neighbors, the actual community and culture that we live in. You see, the Christian church in the West used to be the source and the stewards of the culture, but we're not anymore. This is not our city. This is not our culture. This is not our community. We are no longer the majority. We're the minority and we're not trusted. We're distrusted. And many of our deepest values are looked at as if they're a threat. The church has moved from being an establishment community to being a missionary community. We are a missionary church sent out by God into this culture, this city, this community. In other words, we are like the exiles from Jerusalem living in Babylon during the 6th century BC. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 5, God tells those Jerusalem exiles, quit the way you're acting. Stop it. Stop looking at the place where you live as your enemy. Stop renting houses because you're just waiting to get back home soon. Instead, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare, the shalom, the flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. And so, like those Jerusalem exiles, we need to resist the temptation to hate our city, to hate the current culture. We need to resist the temptation to want to push back from the place we live and to retreat from it, to think that the fundamental calling of the church is to guard and preserve our holiness against the threat of the culture, to actively cultivate a separate existence removed from the corrupting challenges of the world. Now, yes, we need to take God's call to be holy seriously. We need to take God's call to be a peculiar people seriously. We need to be serious about resisting sin. But the problem with your root identity being to preserve holiness, the problem with this whole way of thinking about the church and the culture is that it portrays to the world that God's relationship to the world is primarily a relationship of opposition. We're lying to the world. We're falsely imaging God to the world. Because that way of relating to the culture 
makes the bride of Christ a place that is nurturing fear and anxiety and anger. And the retreat and the fortify approach adopts a hostile posture toward the world. But we saw last week that God's heart toward the world is not one of opposition, but of love. And God's way with the world is not pushing away from it in disgust, but moving toward it in redemptive love. To be a missionary church, we have to resist the temptation to push back and retreat. To be a missionary church, we also have to put, resist the temptation to aggressively fight to win back the culture, to want to take it back to what it used to be, to think that the fundamental calling of the church is to triumph over the culture. And again, this whole approach means that when the world looks at us, we who are imaging Christ are imaging to the world that Christ's fundamental posture to the world is opposition. But instead of retreating into isolated religious communities, when we instead move into the world in an attempt to take it back, that way of being a Christian sees our neighbors not as people to be loved, but as opponents to be defeated. That's a false image of Christ too. And too often this approach leads the church to embody the character of the way the world's character looks when it's trying to dominate. We end up being quite Nietzschean. Power. Ends justify the means. But that character is not reflective of the character of Jesus. It's not reflective of the call of Jesus to lay our life down for the good of our neighbor. A third temptation we have to resist if we're going to be a missionary church is that we have to resist the temptation to be so mad at the dominators, so unimpressed with the retreaters that we just don't want to do that stuff anymore. So we just adapt and adopt and assimilate and just move right in. And we put such a priority on collaborating and partnering with our neighbors that we no longer bear witness to Jesus Christ as we accept a new morality untethered to Jesus Christ. And so, to be a missionary church, what we're seeing in this series of sermons as we explore these passages of Scripture, to be faithful to Jesus means we have to be faithful to our city. And to do that, we're drawing on six practices that have shaped the church throughout the generations, throughout history, when the church has been really good at being missionary, when it's been good at living in whatever moment it's landed in. In other words... We're not learning anything new in this series. We're not innovating some new trends. We're not trying to say, hey, the church has never gotten it right. It always gets it wrong. Here's the way to be a good church. Here's a better way. We suddenly have figured something out that Christians have never figured out. That's not what we're doing. We're doing the opposite. We're saying, look, the church has been really good at this before. Throughout its history, it's been amazing in its missionary impulse. And so we want to understand who we are as a church in any age that we find ourselves in so that we can, with love and joy, pray for the shalom of our city. Seek the shalom of our city. Manifest the love of God in our city and in our community. 
Now, if you haven't listened to the first three sermons, I want to encourage you to go and listen to them. You can find them on our website because these sermons set the groundwork for the mentality or the approach or the posture that missionary churches need to have toward the culture. This morning, we're going to focus on the third practice. And the third practice that have nurtured and sustained faithful churches through the ages to have a proper missionary encounter with their culture, the third practice is that those churches are communities of people who absolutely insist on human dignity. That's at the root of really good missionaries. It's about understanding that Christians celebrate the image of God in every single person, that every single human being bears God's image. And when Christians remember this, it radically shapes the way we approach Babylon, our neighbor, our community. It radically shapes the way we approach people we disagree with, people who are different from us, people who we might even have experienced as our enemies. And we understand that the preeminent, the first focus of a Christian is that the dignity of everyone matters. And we should be the first group in any city, in any culture, in any community to show up and to defend and fight for and recognize and encourage communities to live in such a way that everyone bears Christ's image. Everyone ha bear, deserve, has dignity. Now, when it comes to insisting on human dignity today, it's kind of tricky. Because on the one hand, our culture really digs this. Our culture prioritizes human dignity, in, in part due to the Christian influence on our culture over the centuries, in part due to the Enlightenment influences, and in part in response to the great tragedies of the 20th century. We're in an age that believes deeply in human dignity. In fact, human dignity is the foundation of our political system. And as a result, here in the West, we devote an enormous amount of intellectual energy and moral energy and economic and political resources to establishing and guarding human dignity. And that's a massive cultural achievement. And it was influenced by Christianity, but it was secured by secularists. We can't take ownership for all of that. Here's the hitch. While our society insists on human dignity, it regularly and habitually practices human diminishment. Every day, in so many ways, in our personal practices and in our public institutions, we diminish human beings. We limit their minds. We shame their hearts, we exploit and consume their bodies, and we destroy their possibilities. All of us see this. Some see it better than others. Poor people, women, African Americans, Latinos, minorities, the LGBTQ community, they see it firsthand. They know that in a moment, driving home, you can be pulled over and dehumanized. The dehumanizing of others 
is the original American pastime. We started out dehumanizing others. 12 million slaves. Our political scene today is filled with dehumanization. It's in our commercials. We do it in the jokes that we tell, in the movies we watch. It's really sort of the sport du jour in America. It's in our social media where we watch people being exploited or harmed or killed. And the implications of a community or civilization who has as one of its primary forms of entertainment, the destruction of human beings, that is terrible. And it's not just out there. It's in the church. How many of us right now can remember our failings to treat our own families with dignity? And much more so our failures to treat people we dislike, who we vote different than, without dignity. Have you seen the horrible video footage of Tyree Nichols? A 29-year-old black man who was pulled over in Memphis for what police say was reckless driving on January the 7th. And after attempting to flee, saying, I just want to go home, when the police catch him, they brutally beat him? Have you seen the footage? You need to. Love of neighbor will drive you to watch it. After they handcuffed him, they held him up and beat him. And he died three days later from his beating. The video footage is something we need to watch, especially if you're white. Because we need to know what people in this country experience. The officers dragging him from his car, shouting profanities at him, using a taser, handcuffing him. All the while, he's crying out for his mom. Too often, we in the church have forgotten our God-crafted identity of love, and we've taken up habits of looking away. Habits that form us into angry voters, angry citizens, filled with resentment. And so, yeah, we practice love, but mostly for those who love us back and share our similar beliefs, those who live by different creeds or lifestyles, how often do we belittle them? I mean, just in honesty, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you Democrats have at a dinner party belittled Trump? How many of you Republicans have belittled Biden? How often have we used our power to marginalize people or simply act silently apathetic when others are doing the work of dehumanization? To be a missionary church, we have to not only know our context, we not only have to recover our confession that God loves the world, we have to believe and insist on human dignity. This is our Old Testament reading. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. Listen to it again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Think about this. In the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, God declares, he plants a flag, all humans bear his image. They have this dignity. And as Christians, we believe that that is the very first thing we have to say about every single person we ever encounter or hear of. It is the first and the most important thing about every single neighbor. That person has been created in the image of God. That's where we start. Now, I want to point out three implications of the image of God in every human being, of human dignity. Three implications, three results of someone bearing God's image. The first result, the first implication is this. It means all humans are creatures of glory. The front of your worship God. What is man that you're mindful of and son of man that you care for? That's verse four, Psalm 8, verse four. It's answered in verse five. You have given him glory and honor. See, in Psalm 8, the move isn't, woe is me, I'm a worm. The move is, holy cow, humans have glory. That's the first move. The first move is that we carry the image of the king. We are crowned with unspeakable, ineradicable glory, a glory that's seen in the mystery of our faces and it's seen in the grace of our bodies and in the creativity of our minds. We are robed in light. We are people of dignity. And that dignity, it's important to understand as Christians... We believe that dignity is not anchored in the fact that we agree with each other. It's not anchored in sentimental views. It is anchored in the fact, the reality of the image of God. And the Christian church is a church that insists on that for every single person. I mean, can you imagine what did it take for Mother Teresa to move into the slums and stay there for 50 years? A deep commitment that every person had dignity and glory and weight and gravity. One of the most helpful things for me in my own life, just speaking personal as somebody who doesn't always recognize the image of God in some of you, um, you know who you are, (laughs) is our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Just out of curiosity, if you were God, would it rain in Russia? After the first service, a man told me that in 1964, he rode a train through Um, from West Germany into East Germany. And he said he remembers distinctly, it was bright and sunny in West Germany. And when they crossed over, he was shocked that it was bright and sunny. In his guts, he had anticipated it would be cloudy. I mean, that's, that's the way of things, isn't it? 
Would you let the sun shine on your opponents? In this passage where Jesus tells us that God sends the rain on the righteous and the wicked alike, there's a sense in which God holds his creatures, all of them, and loves them. And if God is the ability to honor and to see and to actually steward the dignity of the people that are even the ones opposed to him, that has to be the foundation of how we interact with our neighbors, all of our neighbors. God's holy image imprints itself on black and white people, men and women, rich and poor, incarcerated and free, queer and straight, documented and undocumented, non-disabled and disabled, powerful and oppressed. We are equal in value and we relate to people as if we are all equal in value. And we catch ourselves when we're letting ourselves off the hook for that. That's what missionary churches do. We are equal in value in our shared likeness to God. And so it's important that we always see ourselves and our neighbors, even those who are our enemies, as creatures weighted down with glory. Second, when the Bible talks about humans who bear the image of God, the second thing we see is that we are not only creatures of glory, we are creatures of shame. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. Does anybody know this verse? And fall short of the... All of us. We are creatures that are broken by sin and estranged from our life of God. We're alienated from ourselves and we're broken in relationships with other people and we're alienated from the world. Even the most prideful and secretive among us know that deep down we are selfish. Too often we hurt those around us by our words and our behaviors. We turn our attention away from those who need have needs, and we immerse ourselves in distractions and comforts. And so because of this, the church, the Christian church, must remember that we have to renounce self-righteousness because we are all people of shame. We have to be honest about our shame, and we have got to be incredibly gentle with the shame of other people. We are creatures of glory. We are creatures of shame. And third, as Christians, this is the Christian view of dignity. Creatures of glory, creatures of shame. Third, we are creatures of hope. That while our behavior, behavior has sometimes been awful and violent and other times merely foolish and unkind, the church clings to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, by his loving sacrifice, died for all people and rose again. And he proclaims that he has saved us and that he is now remaking us and that he will come for us to make all of creation new and beautiful again. In our New Testament reading, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, we see this incredible image of you and I and our city and our communities created by God and for God to be people of beauty and glory and love. And though we are also creatures of shame, 
Here is Jesus. And because of what he does, because of what he has done, we have hope. Your enemies have hope. Your neighbors have hope. You, me, we have hope. And this hope does not disappoint. We have the end of the story. We don't have to live our lives wondering how it's going to turn out. We know that the end of the story is here and that hope does not disappoint. It rallies our weary souls and our distracted hearts to love yet again. And when we live in this way, we will offer the world a model of love demonstrated on behalf of others. Because it moves us to fight for to fight injustice whenever it rears its ugly head. And it moves us to confront power when it's not being used on behalf of others. And it move, moves us to pursue the least of these whom God treasures. And this hope, you know what? It even applies to ourselves. The call to human dignity motivates us with the renewed hope, motivates me that I can change, that I can become a person who gets better at seeing the dignity of all people. We can live into the renewed hope that others who are different than us will one day treat us back with dignity. And so as we open up, as we open ourselves up to the fact that this is not our culture, we are missionaries here. As we open ourselves up to our confession, anchored in love, oriented toward love, and that our neighbors have incredible dignity, this will shift our posture into a missionary posture so that we can be a missionary church in the city. I think part of what this means for us to be a missionary church is that it teaches me that seeing other people's weakness is not insight. I mean, how old does a human have to be before they start noticing things in others that ain't right? That's not insight. Insight is the ability to see their glory to refuse to deny the image of God that continues to exist. And that is an extraordinarily profound discipline that healthy churches develop in each other. What if our small groups became places where we graciously and gently learned to stop dehumanizing others? Where we learned how to humanize even our enemies. This practice of insisting on the dignity of others, it's not about seeing their potential. Don't say you see the potential in your enemy. That is belittling. Oh, now, you have so much potential. What? <laughs> Who feels loved by that? The discipline of, of insisting on the Glory, the image-bearing dignity of humans. It's about seeing that right now, while my enemy is mistreating me, in that moment, 
I do not see that person in terms of a glory deficit. But in that moment, I learn that even in that moment, they are weighted down with glory. In the moment of betraying me, in the moment of being my enemy, they are heavy with glory, not just potential, but right now, real, actual glory. They bear God's image. And I see that they are endowed with this glory, that their whole being bears witness to it, that even if they don't know it, it's there. And there's a sense of saying that churches that do this, they are churches who say, I must behold the glory that God has put in my neighbor. I must, and I need to live with people who are good at it and will help me get good at it and will call me out in loving ways when I'm actually habituating myself into not seeing that. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to see other people's weaknesses. It is right to see things that are broken in other people. It's right to see things that are wrong, but you have to do that from the recognition that you are broken. That you yourself, that all have fallen short of the glory of God and that you yourself have not somehow escaped from the fires of corruption. You see, it's not just our glory that binds us to our neighbors. It's also our shame. And that's a really important thing. That, some, that is something we share with all of our neighbors. That just as they're ashamed of their thoughts and the things they've done and their pride and their adultery, so we ourselves have this too. And so there is a lot of blindness that we have, in, not just in the fact that we have an inability to see glory, but there is an unwillingness to see that we see people through the lens of our own sin and our own shame. If we are Christians, this means that we believe that Christ loved us while we were yet sinners. While we were yet his enemies. And so I cannot deny the reality of God's life and his dignity in my neighbors who profoundly disagree with me. We have to be people who say, I will start, I will begin my journey with you. I will begin all of my thoughts about you. I will begin them with your glory. That is where I start with you. And I can see shame in myself and my neighbors, but then we have to move to the possibility of hope that people can in fact be made new. Not in the ways that we think they should, but in the way that God himself, in his sovereignty and providence, that God himself thinks that they should and is revealed in his word. And we are looking for God to make things new and to make people new. And that means we have a disposition of hope. Missionary churches have a fundamental disposition of hope. Hope for all people in all times. When we honor the image of God in one another, we are honoring the God whose image we bear. Let's pray.